Well, good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, kids. <laughs> All excited about Christmas. So what are we excited for? For presents? Is that what we're excited for? Probably a little bit, right? Skateboards. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Well, I'm glad that the kids are excited and, but we need to remember to look past, to look past all the wrapping and look at the gift, the true gift of Christmas. And, Sometimes I think about on Sunday mornings when we when we talk about how everybody we hope everybody has a good day, has had a good week. The reality is that not everybody does have a good day, not everybody does have a good week. Sometimes we're just kind of trained to maybe say things are good even when they're not necessarily good. So this morning I want to look a little bit at um since we're I guess the reason for for looking at Isaiah is twofold. First, because Isaiah has some of the clearest prophecies of the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And secondly, because we're reading through the book of Isaiah. So we'll kind of maybe set a little bit of context in Isaiah and we'll maybe discover why exactly Isaiah is prophesying the Messiah. The audience in Isaiah's day had found themselves basically in the same position of as someone who is despairing, someone who is not having a good week, not having a good day. The audience was in total disarray and in despair. So Isaiah is using the promise of the coming Messiah to bring hope for the people. We'll spend quite a bit of time in Second Kings as well, just to kind of build, help build the context. So maybe keep your finger in Isaiah and one finger in 2 Kings. I find the Second Kings and Second First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are kind of act in a way the same as the book of Acts does in the New Testament, where a lot of the context for the other books in the Old and New Testament can be found in the book of Acts and in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. So that's why we'll spend a little bit of time there as well. So let's go to Isaiah. First, and let's just look at some of the prophecies. We'll look at a few of them of the coming Messiah. First, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6. And most of these will probably sound familiar. Isaiah 9.6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 11.1 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And a couple verses further, 11.10. And 
And that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Since the beginning of time, God has promised the Messiah. Since the beginning, beginning in the garden, when God, because of Adam's sin in the garden of Eden, Genesis 3, verse 15, because through Adam's sin came into our world, God promised a Savior because of his sin. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is our first hint of the gospel. So let's fast forward a little bit to the Jews released from Egypt. After the Jews entered the promised land, there was a continuous cycle of wickedness and rebellion against God. And this can be found, this can be read in the book of Judges. God would send a nation against the Jews to punish them. The people will cry out to God. God would send a judge, and the judge would deliver them. The people worshipped God after the judge delivered them, and then the rebellion would start again. And this was a continuous cycle in the book of Judges, and this happened over and over and over again. Then finally, after the book of Judges, the people demanded a king to be like the other nations. They wanted to be as everyone else was. And just note the irony of that. God had chosen the Jews and set them apart as his children, and yet, and to be, for him to be king over them, and yet now they want to be like everybody else. Now they want to be like other nations. Instead of looking to the king of heavens, king of heavens, they wanted a human king. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. First Samuel 8, 19. The verses leading up to that, Samuel is warning them of what a human king will do to them. He's warning them against a human king, but the people refuse to, li- to listen. So in 1 Samuel 8, verse 19, we read, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out from before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man, every man to his city. So God gave the, the people of Israel a king and King Saul. And Saul failed God. After Saul, God gave them David. And he made a covenant with King David, the son of Jesse, promising that David's throne would be established forever, which is fulfilled by the reign of Christ for eternity. 
It is on that throne that Christ is ruling to this day. The people had demanded a human king which God gave them. But God was so gracious that he also promised the king to come and to reign for eternity over his people. He knew that a human king would never be able to do everything that God wanted his people to do. He knew that he, they would need, someday they would need a Messiah. And we read of this promise in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 12. So this is God's promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So after the rule of King David, King David's son Solomon ruled, and after Solomon, his son Rehoboam was made king. He introduced policies, and he even increased the taxes that Solomon had put in place, and they became so unbearable for the people. Eventually, the kingdom split. We have the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. So 10 of the original 12 tribes of Israel were in the nation of Israel now, and the remaining two tribes made up Judah. These two kingdoms continued on for 200 years until the defeat of Israel at the hands of Assyria. Israel had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. There was no, not one good king to be found in Israel's line of kings. Judah did have two or three who did follow God. But in Israel, none were to be found. So in 722 BC, approximately 200 years after the kingdom split, Israel paid for its unending wickedness. For over 200 years, God had been patient with them. But in 722 BC, God sent Assyria against Israel. Remember, this is also the time which Isaiah was prophesying in the, in the nation of Judah, which is the time when Assyria was coming against Israel. Second Kings describes the wickedness of Israel. Let's go to Second Kings chapter 17. And that's kind of where the narration also starts, where we'll be in today. Second Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 6. So King Hoshea was the king of Assyria, or the king of Israel at the time. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, 2 Kings 17, verse 6, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Samaria being the country or the capital city of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah. Samaria was the capital city of Israel. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and, at, and on the Haber, Haber, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out 
before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings in all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes, in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. Then they, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold them to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So we see the wickedness and the evil of the nation of Israel. They sacrificed their children, their gods, their false gods. Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah starts off as well with the reason for God's judgment. And although the whole chapter is based upon the wickedness of Israel and what they have done and what they have done to, to bring upon God's judgment on themselves, we'll just read the first couple of verses starting in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. And then in verse 14 we see, chapter 1, verse, verse 14, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates, they have become a burden to me, I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Even the patience of God has run thin. So in 722 BC, at the time of the Syrian invasion, when Assyria came against Israel, Israel was actually already a vassal country to Assyria. Israel was a vassal country to Assyria. They were paying tribute to the king of Assyria as were many other countries at that time, including actually the nation of Judah. Assyria was a mighty power at that time, and the tribute was to keep Assyria from destroying the nation. As long as the country paid tribute to them, Assyria allowed them to exist. Assyria dominated the ancient Near East with their military power for 250 years. So King Hosea is the king of Israel during this time in 722 B.C., and he decides to rebel against Assyria. He stops paying tribute, 
and goes to the king of Egypt for help. So 2 Kings 17 again, this time starting in verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, so Ahaz being, was the king of Judah at the time, Hoshea, the king of Elah, or the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to Saul, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. Remembering again, Samaria was the capital of Israel. And for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Haber and the river of Gozan in the city of the Medes. So the Jews were taken and they were dispersed. They were scattered and placed into other countries and to other nations. And then fast forward to verse 24, 2 Kings 17, 24. We see that the king of Assyria brought people who lived in these nations, other nations that he had conquered, and he brought them to live in Israel. In verse 24, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Zepharavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria, Samaria instead of the people of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And these people whom the king had put to live in Israel, these are the ones who actually became to be called the Samaritans in the New Testament. And this also explains in part why the Jews would have hated them so much, because the Samaritans lived in the land that they believed belonged to them. And also the Samaritans reminded them of their past sins against God. God was not pleased with King Hosea's choice to ask Egypt for help. God wants the king of his people to come to him for help. Isaiah mentions the king's mistake in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1 to 3. Isaiah 31, verse 1, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And he is speaking here of King Hosea's mistake. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will perish together. Back to Second Kings verse 17, verse 18. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight, and none was left but the tribe of Judah only. So at this point, Israel ceases to exist. And again, this was the time during which Isaiah was prophesying to Judah, to King Ahaz and King Hezekiah after him. So what about Judah? Where do they fit in? We fast forward about 17, 18 years to 705 B.C., from 722 to 705 B.C., Israel no longer exists, but Judah is still there, and it is still a vassal country to Assyria. And they are still paying tribute to Assyria and King Sennacherib, who is on the throne there now. 
In 705, King Hezekiah also rebelled against Assyria. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 7. And the Lord was with him wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So then another four years later, in 701 B.C., King Sennacherib came against Judah, defeating every major city of Judah on its way to Jerusalem, including, including one of what was considered Judah's most fortified cities, the city Lachish. All of Judah at this point was basically defeated by Assyria, except for its capital city. Assyria besieged Jerusalem, but because Hezekiah asked God for help, God had different plans. 2 Kings 19, verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out, and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And Sennacherib, king of Assyria departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. This account can also be found in Isaiah chapter 37. What's interesting from secular history is that there's a clay prism, a clay prism that was found in recent excavations in the city of Nineveh, in the ancient city of Nineveh. This clay prism was dated back to 689 BC, so this would have been shortly after King Sennacherib came up against Jerusalem. And it was King Sennacherib who commissioned this prism to be made. And it's a six-sided prism. I think if I read right, it's about 18 inches high. And there it details all of King Sennacherib's conquest in the city of, or in the nation of Judah and other nations beside it. And it details even his defeat of the city of Lachish in Judah. And he boasts, and these, these, one thing we have to remember that these kings, they were, they, they wrote these things in order for the people who came after them would think great of these kings, would, would hold them in high regard. They would see all the things that they had accomplished in, in battle. And the prism even boasts of King Hezekiah being stuck in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage, he writes on it. But that's it. That's all he talks about. And the thing is, King Hezekiah was the very reason why King Sennacherib actually came against him. Because King Hezekiah had rebelled against him. These kings were incredibly evil and ruthless. They would usually, kings that they would capture, they would often skin them alive. They were very, very ruthless. There's no way that King Sennacherib would have just let him go. And yet he never mentions him defeating or taking King Hezekiah captive in the prism. And yet the Bible tells us what happened, why he just went home. Secular history kind of ends at that point. There's no, they don't understand why King Hezekiah, because there's, there's even secular history talks about how King Sanchero came up against King Hezekiah, but it never talks about how he defeated him. It just kind of ends there.
The loss of those men would have been an embarrassing defeat for King Sennacherib. So ancient kings would always boast in detail their conquests for later generations to read, but they would never mention, they would usually not write down their defeats. And that's something that the Old Testament and the Bible is very unique in that regard. It is an ancient text which often speaks of the defeat of God's people. Other religious texts very often exalt the people who followed a certain God in order to try and make this God look powerful. But the Bible does the opposite. The Bible exalts God, but it speaks of the weakness of the people who follow him. Which in itself speaks to the divine nature of the Bible. So after God killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's men, when King Hezekiah was still on the throne, a Babylonian envoy arrived in Jerusalem. So this happened shortly after. An envoy from Babylon came to pay King Hezekiah a visit. And King Hezekiah decides to show them their treasury. And Isaiah prophesies that one day the Babylonians will take what Hezekiah showed them. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 12. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and where did they come and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers has stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that ye have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? This account again is also found in Isaiah 39. So Babylon was growing in power at this time. And approximately 90 years after these events, in 612 BC, Assyria eventually fell to the nation of Babylon. So another 10 years after, another 10 years after Assyria fell to Babylon, 100 years after Isaiah made the prophecy concerning Babylon, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon besieged Jerusalem and Judah and took King Jehoiakim captive and made his son Jehoiachin captive or king of Judah. Let's jump ahead to 2 Chronicles for this account as it gives us a little bit more details. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 5. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 5. 
Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. King Nebuchadnezzar took many people captive at this time, including the prophet Daniel. Then only a few short years later in 597 B.C., King Jehoiakim rebelled against Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar came back against him as well and took him and many others captive, including the prophet Ezekiel this time. Second Kings chapter 24, let's go back to Second Kings, jump ahead to verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 10. Second Kings 24, verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, and he carried off all the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut, his, cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. Remember Isaiah's prophecy. Then king Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah king, but he too rebelled, and King Nebuchadnezzar again returned, besieged Jerusalem for two more years. Eventually, Jerusalem was defeated, and this time destroyed in 586 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar burnt most of the city, including the temple, and took captive most of the people who remained. In Second Kings 24, verse 18, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. The seventy years of Babylonian exile has begun. Second Kings 25 verse 21. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So why all this history on Christmas Day? Why is this important in regards to Isaiah's prophecies of the coming Messiah? I believe it gives us some little bit of context to some of the most amazingly hopeful prophecies in Scripture regarding the coming Messiah which are recorded in the book of Isaiah. Over a century earlier, God had used Assyria to wipe out the nation of Israel for their sins. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5, Isaiah speaks of how the Lord, how God used the king of Assyria against the king, against the, the nation of Israel. Isaiah 10 verse 5, he says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. Assyria is a rod being welded by God, by the Holy God. Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury, 
Against a godless nation, being Israel, I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Assyria was a tool in God's hand against Israel. Verse 15 in chapter 10 in Isaiah, Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. So here he's speaking about the boast of the king of Assyria. And God is saying these boasts are fruitless. They're merely an axe that God used to hew with. And after he used Assyria, he also used Babylon to bring the nation of Judah to its knees over a hundred years later and into exile. The Jews are a broken and scattered people at this point. Their nations no longer exist. The king of, the king of uh, Babylon, he did leave some behind in the nation of Judah and Jerusalem, basically to plow the land, to work in the vineyards for the king of Babylon. But the nation, the way it had existed before, no longer existed, and and Israel didn't exist at all. But now, in the midst of this, God shows mercy. First, he will punish Assyria for what they have done using Babylon. And we see here a message of divine sovereignty and human responsibility clearly portrayed in Scripture, how God first used Assyria to punish the wicked as Israel, but now he will punish Assyria for what they have done to his nation Israel. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 12 again. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, so when his judgment has been fulfilled upon the nations, he will punish the speech of the arrogant king of king of arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Assyria will be punished. And then God will also punish Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 17. Speaking of speaking of Babylon here, behold I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, and the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And yet it is not as though Israel did not, Israel and Judah did not have warning. Because God is merciful. God's judgment is perfect. But God is merciful, and He is full of grace, and He is long-suffering. Second Chronicles chapter 36, we read, The Lord, the God of their fathers, chapter 36, verse 15, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them, to Israel and Judah, by His messengers, because He had compassion on these people. They were murdering their own children, sacrificing them to the god Molech. And He had compassion on these people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God 
despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the, Lord, the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So in the midst of this despair, God brings hope. Why? The answer is not because of anything that the children of Abraham had done. Not because of what they had done. If it was because of what they had done, there would be no hope. When you look at their wickedness, there would be no hope. When we look at our life, there would be no hope. It is not for our sake. It is not because of who we are that God did this. Because then there would be nothing but judgment and punishment for our sins. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It is because the Lord had made a promise to Abraham and he had made a promise to David that David's throne would rule for, all, for an eternity. It is for, the, for God's own sake that he did it. One of the last words of David are found in 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23 verse 5. David says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, a covenant that will never end, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper, cause to prosper all my help and my desire? This covenant is eternal. This covenant, covenant is secure. Remember God's promise to David from 2 Samuel 7 about how he will establish his throne. So now, even after the incredible wickedness of Israel and Judah, even sacrificing their living children to die on the altars of false god, gods, God again, the true God, shows mercy. It is now that God is reminding them that through the prophet Isaiah, of his promise made long ago to King David to provide hope to the people. Remember, the Jews are completely dispersed. Those who were in Judah are in exile in Babylon. Those who are in Israel are just dispersed throughout other nations. Those ten tribes have ceased to exist. And now Isaiah is bringing hope to these people. Even after all these wickedness, centuries of evil and wickedness, God brings hope. Isaiah 7.14 The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel. Isaiah 9.6 For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I think that title probably... Soothe the hearts of the Israelites, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 11.1 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The people will finally be able to fully rest in the coming Messiah. He will gather his people together, and he will finally be their king. They will no more ask for an earthly human king.
Isaiah 11.10 In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. He will gather his people again from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamoth, and from the coastlands of the sea. Remember, this is where, this is where the Bible mentions these people were spread out to, were dispersed by Assyria. And he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Isaiah's message does not end with judgment, but with divine grace. This is the context of Isaiah. He was a prophet to the country Judah and was prophesying at the time of Assyrian power, invasion, annihilation, and exile of Israel. God punished Israel and he punished Judah for their wickedness using Assyria and Babylon. Yet in the midst of despair, Isaiah brings hope. God does not forget his promises. In God's divine grace, not only does he gather the remnant of Israel and Judah, but he makes a way for sojourners, for sojourners and Gentiles to become children of Abraham. Isaiah 14, verse 1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. God's promises here apply to believers. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Then you are a sojourner attached to the house of Jacob. We find ourselves asking this questions: why? Why, when these people were so wicked, so evil, why would God be so gracious? Isaiah 43.25 gives us the answer. Isaiah 43.25 I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why did God do this when the people did not deserve it? For my own sake, he says. His graciousness, his mercy, and love are just as much a part of God's character as his perfect judgment is. And how does a perfectly just God plan on extending forgiveness to his people? It is through the Messiah. How can the promises of Isaiah 43 be fulfilled? No longer through the sacrifice and blood of goats and lambs, but through the sacrifice of his son. His death on the cross is where God's perfect justice and mercy came together. God was perfectly just because he punished sin by crushing his son and counting him among the transgressors when his son bore the sins of many. By crushing Jesus, he has made perfect justice. And now he can forgive perfectly for his own sake because sin has been paid for. Isaiah continues on in chapter 53, very familiar passage, to explain exactly how God will fulfill this hope to the nations. Let's read Isaiah 53. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. Referencing again how he was the stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his, ho- his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Instead of crushing the wicked nation of Israel and crushing us for our sin, he crushed the one whom there was no deceit found in his mouth. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for transgressors. When Christmas time comes, we must be able to look past the wrapping and truly see this gift that God has given. Jesus himself says in Mark 10.45, that I did not come to serve I do not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. That is why he came. God sent his son to be born in the manger, to be the hope for his elect in a dark, godless and sinful world, to be the salvation for his children, so that as his children we can say with Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 12, and I will conclude with this passage of Scripture. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 12, starting in verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for through, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, 
Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. God, we come before you in humility. We are no better than the wickedness and the evil that was done by the nations Israel and Judah. We belong in their midst. It is... We as humans, I cannot even understand how we can show grace, so much grace to someone who has done what we have done. And yet for your sake, God, you show unending grace because of your promises, because of your character, because you are not only just, but you are full of grace and mercy and love. And just like we were, we belong in the midst of Israel and Judah in their wickedness and their evil. We belong in their midst now when you have promised the Messiah to come. And through Christ, we can also claim to be children of Abraham. Thank you, God, for your promises. Thank you for sending your son to be born on Christmas so that he could give his life as a ransom for many and that he could redeem a children to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. May you be with us this day. Help us, God, to honor you. Help us to glorify you. Help us, God, to be lights in a dark world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.